number one best-selling author of Martin Luther, If You Can Keep It, Bonhoeffer, Miracles, Seven Women, Seven Men, and Amazing Grace. He's written more than 30 children's books, including the bestsellers Squanto and the Miracle of Thanksgiving and It's Time to Sleep, My Love, illustrated by Nancy Tillman. His books have been translated into more than 20 languages. He's the host of the Eric Taxis uh, radio show, a nationally syndicated radio program heard in more than 120 cities across the U.S., featuring in-depth interviews with a wide variety of guests. And he's joined this morning by his wife, Suzanne. Please give a warm apostles welcome to our friend. Wow. Praise the Lord. Can you hear me? Hey, where is everybody this morning? What's up? I'm a little offended. Uh, last time I was here, the place was packed. All right. I guess you guys are the elect. No, no, no. You're the, you're the remnant. You're the holy remnant. The other people could not sit under my teaching. And they chose to uh, lazily watch online. If you're watching this online, I rebuke you. And... Um, uh, Actually, it's such a blessing uh, to be here. I'm so glad my wife was able to join me this time. Another time, yes, yes, and uh, it's still, still my first wife. Praise God, unbelievable. We we met in church. Uh, I um, I got to tell you, uh, it is a tremendous blessing to be honored to be able to stand in this pulpit because I know who normally stands here, and I miss him this morning, and I miss. Him not greeting me downstairs and saying, Brother, would you like a Red Bull? It's like, I don't even know if I'm in church here if I don't hear that. So, I, I, uh, Jonathan, you could have tried. You could have tried. I'm sure you could uh, imitate your father. I can imitate my father. My father has a Greek accent. When you say something in certain accents, it has an authority. You know what I'm saying? Uh, in Times Square Church, where I met Suzanne, we have a number of African pastors. I'm not, I don't mean African-American. I mean African pastors. And when they pray, whatever they say, you just feel like the Shekinah glory just hit you hard. You know, they say, oh, God. And you're like, all right. It's, uh, it has an authority. And the Red Bull line, you know I'll never forget that. Uh, I, I know your father's praying I will forget it, but I'll never forget it. Um, <laughs> I have so much that I want to, want to share this morning in the 90 minutes we have together. Uh, and uh, first, I want to uh, take you to a scripture. Now, by the way, there will be a test at the end, uh, uh, a quiz or a test, uh, whatever, you, whatever you want to call it. But first, I want to go uh, to Galatians um, 5. And if you don't have a Bible, I assume you're not saved, so listen up. Um, all right, this is... Uh, I'm going to read uh, Galatians 5.1. Uh, sorry, Galatians 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be tangled again with a yoke of bondage. These are like harsh words from Paul, okay? Something's going on in Galatia, and he addresses it, right? So he says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you 
nothing. Now, I don't need to tell you that's an outward form. In life, we're called to do outward things. There's no question about it. But if you think you're saved by the outward things, right? I go to church, I tithe, uh, I did this, I did that. I didn't cheat on my wife, I didn't cheat on taxes, whatever. I guess, I guess I'm, I'm saved because of that. Paul is trying to say to these people, you better be careful because God is not fooled by the outward. He is not fooled. He sees your heart. He knows uh, if you know him or you don't, you cannot fool him. Uh, Paul says, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. In other words, what Paul is saying, oh, you want to play that game? You want to play that game? Okay, you think you're going to get saved because of that? Well, if you want to play that game, you need to follow every single law, and you better not screw it up. That's what he's saying, right? He says, you become a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Now, I know there's some people listening at home. I will not mention my relatives by name. Shame on them for not showing up. They, don't, they live in coming. I'm calling them out. I told you I'd call you out. But I want to say we need to be really clear on what Christian faith is. And even people who go to church sometimes forget. We forget. What is Paul saying? He's saying if you try by your efforts, by doing this and not doing this and doing this many times and, and not doing this many times, and if you try to earn your way to salvation, good luck. No one has ever done it in the history of the world. Good luck with that project. He's saying that the only way you can get to heaven, the only way you can be reconciled to God is through faith in what Jesus did on the cross when he died for you. If you try any other way to be reconciled to God, you are a fool, you cannot do it. And Paul in the scripture is speaking to people who are trying to do it. They are trying to do a number of things and they are losing sight of the only thing you can do to find God and to be reconciled to God. And it has nothing to do with your efforts it has to do with faith in Jesus. Now, folks, you've got to understand, the reason Paul repeats this and the reason we have such a mess in our world is because this is not easy to get. Let's not pretend this is easy to get. Human nature always says, if I try hard to be a good person, I need to try hard I need to be a good person. I need not to sin. I need not to do this. I need not to do that. I, I, I know that. I know that. We all know that, except it's basically wrong. God says, that's a nice idea. Since the history of humanity on the planet, people have concocted religions and religious rules because we all know we're somehow 
bad. We're somehow divorced from God or from divinity or whatever it is. And we don't want the gods to curse our crops or, or, or anything. So what, what can I do? What do I need to do? And there's always rituals. Every religion, that's what a religion is. It's a way for you to earn your way into the favor of the gods or God. And there are many Christians who are part of the Christian religion rather than faith in Christ and who are doing this and doing that and doing this and they have lost sight of the one thing that God calls us to do. He came into history one time to send his son to die on the cross so that what his perfect son did, and if there's any Don Lemon fans, I apologize. I just want to be clear. Jesus was the only perfect man in the history of the universe, right? So if that's the case, God says, because he loves us, I will send my son to be a perfect man and to die on the cross to pay for your sins. And if you believe in him and what he did, what he did, not what you do, what he did, you will be saved by faith in him. The temptation will always be to add a little bit to that. Say, yeah, but I want extra credit. I want to do this. I want to do that. Once you do that, you forget that you deserve to go to hell. And it's only because of what Jesus did on the cross. If you don't fix your faith on what Jesus did on the cross for you, you're sort of blaspheming what he did for you. You're saying it's not really enough. Or maybe it's enough for some people, but I want more. There is no more. Faith in Jesus Christ. So when Paul talks about this, he's being very strong because he has seen in Galatia at that time people who are trying on their own efforts and he's warning them, right? So he says, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Only in faith in Jesus can you be righteous, right? So anybody who thinks, well, I'm a, I'm a good person, hey, I do my best, you're going to hell. You want to go to hell? Read the Bible and tell me if I'm getting it wrong. The Bible says it is by faith in Jesus, not by doing good stuff, by faith in Jesus that you go to heaven. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. He goes on later in, in verse 9 to say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, I know we don't have a ton of bakers in the audience today, but leaven, it's that image, right? You put a little leaven in the dough and it touches, it goes all through the dough. And so we have to be aware, okay, that if you get it wrong, what you focus on wrong, it's going to affect your whole life, your whole perspective, if you focus on Jesus and the liberty that God gives us in Jesus, that too will affect everything in your life. So part of the reason I bring this up, I say there's a quiz at the end, is your faith in what Jesus did on the cross 
Do you understand that only he can save you? Only he can save you and saved you. And if you believe in him, God accounts it to you as righteousness. And you will follow him out of the grave into heaven, which is where you are supposed to go. God created you for that. But if you say, well, I, I don't know, I don't get that, I'm, I'm just going to try to be a good person, you are the fool climbing the ziggurat, okay? Remember the Tower of Babel, okay? Uh, the Tower of Babel or Babel, that was the idea that we're going to build a tower to ascend into the heavens. How did that work out? We can't do it, folks. In case you don't have time, uh, let me just cut to the chase. The heavens are infinitely distant from us. You can climb for a billion years. You can never reach God. God can reach you. So we should kind of focus on that. He can reach you. He did reach you. He came from heaven to earth in Jesus to die on the cross to make a way for you to go to him. So we need to be super clear. And when, when Paul says that first line, he says, stand fast. Okay, that's a little old-fashioned term. But I mean stand firm in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not depart from that liberty. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, I probably don't need to tell you because this is a great church and you hear amazing preaching from here, but you all, all know that uh, God and uh, the Christian faith is not religious, okay? It applies to every part of our lives. The famous Dutch statesman and theologian Abraham Kuyper, I only know this because Chuck Colson used to quote this in every speech. He said, uh, Kuyper said, there is not one square inch over all creation over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign, does not say mine. Politics, the arts, everything. God wants to touch everything. So when people talk about, you know, well, I, I don't want to get political, it's like Jesus touches everything. You only need to figure out where he is in the politics. But don't pretend you can put the politics over here and put God over here, okay? During slavery times, did you want the Christians to put their faith over here? I don't think so. The real Christians understood that slavery is an abomination, that if you know the Scripture, if you're not just some religious phony who just goes to church and doesn't know the Scripture, you might be fooled. But if you know the Scripture, you know God's position he says he's no respecter of persons. Every single human being is created in his image. So people who got that said, oh, and by the way, slavery and the slave trade is an abomination, and we're going to have to get a little political. Forgive us for bringing our faith into politics to abolish a satanic slave trade. We're really sorry. We don't want to compromise our witness. Yeah, you have no witness unless you get political in those situations, right? And when the Jews were being sent in boxcars to their tortured deaths in the death camps, how many German Christians said, we don't want to get political? Oh, no, you know, Romans, it's very clear. We're not supposed to get political. If you don't get political at times like that, 
you have no faith in Jesus because he made you to stand up for what is right. Now, I'm not talking about becoming political fools, okay? They exist as well, okay? And they think you will get saved through your politics, okay? And the woke mob, it's a, it's a classic situation, right? It's the woke mob. You can trace it back to the French Revolution. They wanted utopia on earth because they were trying to do, guess what? They're trying to climb their way to heaven without Jesus. If you try to climb your way to heaven without Jesus, I don't care how you do it, you will not get there. It is a satanic project, folks. It's a satanic project. Who said you can be as gods? Satan said that very early in Genesis, right? He's saying you can be as gods. Well, the problem is it's Satan saying that, in case you didn't know he, he's a bad guy. So this temptation through politics to achieve heaven, to achieve utopia, is a satanic temptation. So we have to have the wisdom and the discernment to know when to be political, how to be political. We need to understand some of this stuff. We have responsibility. Now, the reason we have responsibility is because we live in a free country. And when you live in a free country, you have more responsibility than if you don't live in a free country. If you live in a country where you are under bondage to a bureaucracy or to a tyrant, you just have to do what you're told. But if you're free, you have to do what God calls you to do. You have to do more when you're free. If you want freedom, freedom comes with a price. So I want to talk about this. At, at the gospel, the heart of the gospel, there's this paradox between law and liberty, right? Paul says you are called to stand fast in this liberty, won for you on the cross through Jesus. Well, there's a kind of law of liberty in the scripture. But in other words, if you're commanded to be free, it sounds like you're being forced to be free. But you can't force to be free, otherwise it wouldn't be freedom. There's a paradox, right? How can there be a law of liberty? Well, the point is that we are called to govern ourselves. That's God's first best, right? In history, he wants us to be free. But he can't force us to be free. You see the paradox? Freedom is free. So to govern ourselves, how do we govern ourselves? Well, this takes me um, to what I wanted to, to talk about. I wrote a book uh, four years ago called If You Can Keep It. Now, I get the title of this book from Benjamin Franklin who uh, was leaving the Constitutional Convention in 1787 in Philadelphia. And imagine that we had won the war in 1783, but then it wasn't really going so well, right? The, the, the states had a lot of power, which is good, but they, the, the federal government didn't have much power, which is also good, but they had so little power that they were like, this isn't working. We can't collect taxes. We can't even function. We need to go back into... Uh, Independence Hall, and we kind of like need to figure this out. So they went in there and they wrote what we like to call the Constitution. Remember the Constitution? Well, you know and I know the Constitution can't do anything by itself any more than the Bible can do anything by itself. Human beings need to read the Word of God, and it is then that it comes alive and we can live it out, right? 
But it's not just like printing on a page. There are some Christians who kind of think that like it's magic printing on a page. Um, and if a minor bird recites the scripture, it won't come back void. Well, I'd like to suggest to you that it will come back void. Uh, the fact of the matter is when it says that, you know, God's word will not go forth void. Part of the problem with, um, you know, English-speaking Protestants is that we capitalize the word word for God and we confuse it with the words, and we forget that the word of God the, in, in the Greek, since I'm Greek, I can boast on this, since the Greek is the logos to theou, logos means a lot more than the word, okay? The logos is, it's everything, okay? It's, it's the anointed word of God. It's not just black marks on a page, and it's not just something that you can say. In case I need to remind you, the devil quoted scripture to Jesus, when the devil quoted scripture to Jesus, was it anointed with the Holy Spirit? Think about that. Think about that, folks. If you're solving for X in an algebra problem, right? It's not anointed. The word of God coming out of the mouth of the devil, the word of God can come out of the mouth of a, of, 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 of a slave owner to justify slavery. It can come out of the mouth of a Nazi to justify Nazism. The words of God can be twisted by Satan. But the word of God, the anointed word of God is something else, okay? So we're talking about what the word of God says and how it's alive. And the same thing applies to the Constitution. The Constitution is a piece of paper someplace. And I really believe those words were uh, inspired, not the way Scripture is inspired, but there's something about that document which never existed in the history of the world. And when Franklin came out of the Constitutional Convention... A woman said to him, what have you given us, Dr. Franklin, a monarchy or a republic? I usually would laugh at that, like, ha, 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 how cute. No, they actually didn't know if they had been able to pull off this idea because we've all taken this idea for granted. We're like, oh, self-government, liberty, great, it's great. Ladies and gentlemen, until then, it had never happened in the history of the world. Did you know that? Do you think about that? Do you appreciate the fragility of liberty? the unprecedented nature of what they did, the white guys in the room in 1787? Do you understand that had never been done in the history of the world to create a form of government where the people would be able to govern themselves? Why had that not been done in the history of the world? Well, I'll tell you why, because it's not easy. It's much easier to be governed from some tyrant or some king or by some bureaucracy that tells you what to do. People can't govern themselves. People are sinners. They're going to do whatever they want to do. You need government, right? Well, the founder said, yes, we need government, but we want as little government as possible because we want the people to govern themselves as much as possible. Wouldn't it be nice if the people could govern themselves? But how's that going to work? Why hadn't it worked since the history of the world? Well, number one, because we are sinners, right? And if I can steal and there's no cops to prevent me, why wouldn't I steal? Well, if you believe in God, or even if you just believe in a cultural ethic, it's wrong. My parents taught me. I'm not sure why, but I, I know it's wrong. Then I won't steal. Well, the founders said, what if a people answered to a higher authority? What if there were people that basically, not every one of them, we still have to have police, we still have to have a, a military to protect our, you know, to protect our shores. But, but what if enough people understood this idea 
and were able to govern themselves and would not steal or would not do this or would not do that because they knew it was wrong because they had what's called virtue. They didn't need to be forced to do what is right. They would do it on their own because they were virtuous people. Well, all of the founders, and I mean every single one, Benjamin Franklin, uh, Jefferson, and every single one, including the serious Christians, they all understood that this form of government cannot work without virtue. And they wrote it over and over. I quote it in my book, if you can keep it. All of them wrote about it, right? So when Franklin comes out of the Constitutional Convention, and they're kind of wondering, what did you do in there? Maybe you kind of figured out, you know what, we were a little hasty. This can't work. So we're going to give you like a soft monarchy. It, will, it won't be like King George III. It'll, it'll be better. But it's still not going to be like a republic where people govern themselves totally. We, we couldn't pull that off. And by the way, no one ever pulled it off in the history of the world. So you can't really blame us, right? But God allowed them to pull it off. And God was involved, I'll be blunt, because... Franklin, who was not a theologically orthodox believer, when they came to an impasse, because they had a number of impasses, heads butting, right? You, you know, I don't need to tell you the story. There were some slave states that didn't like the idea that they would not have as much power as the free states, and they made an ugly compromise, and it was a battle. But the free states made that compromise hoping that the guts of this document would be what Martin Luther King Jr. called a promissory note to the future, that in time, slavery would be abolished. Uh, it was not an easy thing to get 13 states to agree. And it was so bad, they were sure it wasn't going to work out. And Benjamin Franklin, who was some kind of a believer, but not, not like we are, okay, he said, we need to pray because I believe that God ordains history and so on and so forth. So they come out of the convention, and when the woman asked him, what have you given us, a monarchy or a republic? He says, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Now, that's the title of my book, If You Can Keep It, because he knew that what we've given you is nothing unless you, the people, keep it. The document is nothing unless you, the people, understand what's in the document and live it out in your lives. And because it's freedom, we can't force you to live it out. Do you get that? It's a paradox. It's the law of liberty. You can't be forced to be free. Freedom, by definition, is unforced. So how's this going to work? Franklin says to this woman, Mrs. Powell, Philadelphia, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. In other words, it's yours to keep or to lose. There's not much we can do to make it work. Maybe it'll last for 10 years. They had no idea that it could last 240-something years. No idea. Because what is necessary for this to work? Well, at the heart of my book, I rip off my friend Oz Guinness. This is his idea. But since we're friends and I dedicated the book to him, I think he probably won't sue me, so I'm good. Here's the idea to help you understand how this works. He calls it the golden triangle of freedom. The golden triangle of freedom, I'll say quickly and I'll explain it. It's that freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. 
And then faith in turn requires freedom. Now let's think about this. Faith requires, I've always heard about faith and freedom and they go together, rah, rah, America, yay. Well, I never understood it until a number of years ago I said, oh, oh, now I get it. I feel pretty foolish that I didn't get it, but now I finally get it. Here's what it is. Freedom and liberty and self-government, if you're going to govern yourselves and be free, you need to govern yourselves. Therefore, you need to have virtue so you'll govern yourself. Otherwise, somebody will come from outside and they'll govern you at the point of a gun, right? You want to govern yourself, you want to be free, you've got to have virtue to do the right thing when nobody's looking, when nobody's forcing you. All of the founders understood this. Now, do you think we're preaching about virtue in the public schools today? Why wouldn't we? If every single one of the founders understood that virtue is, you know, not extra credit, it is vital to liberty and self-government, they understood that if you're going to keep the republic, you better teach your kids this, and you, you better make it clear that without virtue, this stuff goes away. If people don't have virtue, they will be, they'll turn into mobs. They'll, turn, they'll do whatever they can get away with. But if they have virtue, they'll govern themselves. You better teach your kids about this stuff. But now the founders saw another thing, which is not politically correct to say today. They noticed, including those like Franklin who were not particularly religious in the way that we might be, they nevertheless noticed something. They said virtue, just as freedom requires virtue, virtue requires faith. In other words, they observed that when revival breaks out, when people are super Christian, crime goes down. The ability to govern yourself goes up. Domestic abuse goes down. Drunkenness goes down. So they said, you know what? We're all for that. It doesn't need to, I don't even need to believe it. Benjamin Franklin, you know, his, his views were kind of mixed, but he saw the, the reality that when people are religious, Christians who love Jesus and are on fire, they're not just phony churchgoers, they actually believe this stuff, virtue goes up, crime goes down, self-government is possible. But then imagine if you said, oh, we figured out how it works, all right, so freedom requires virtue, virtue requires faith. So if we just force everybody to go to church and have faith, we're all set. But then you realize, well, we can't do that. Real faith cannot be forced, just as freedom cannot be forced. So they then said the last part of the triangle is it starts faith requires virtue. Virtue requires, I'm sorry, freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. But then faith requires freedom. In other words, if you have a government that forces you to believe this or to go to this kind of church or to go to this kind of mosque or this kind of temple or to have no faith. There are many countries in the world today and in history where if you try to worship the Christian God, they will persecute you. They have a state-established religion called atheist Marxism. Have you been to China recently? Do we appreciate what it is to have freedom of religion? Well, you can say and believe anything you want. The founders said, unless we have that in our country, we're just going to go back to the old problems we had in Europe, which is why we escaped Europe. They would establish a religion and say, everybody has to go to the same church the king goes to, 
right? And if you switch kings and you got a new king or queen that goes to a different church, now everybody's got to go to that church. So what's going to happen if you have forced religion? People are going to go through the motions because they're just going to do what they're told, but they're not really going to believe it. They're not going to live it out. They're not going to have more virtue. Why should they have virtue in some phony religious establishment that's just designed to keep them down? Anytime the government is allied with the church, you have that problem. Now, sometimes it's worse than at others. But the founders said that if we do not have freedom of religion where the people can live out their faith, and we're not talking about what they have in China where you you go to your stupid little church on Sunday morning, but when you come out, you bow to the authority of the secular state. That's not freedom of religion. That's freedom of worship, which is a weasel word. It means nothing. If you cannot live out your faith 24-7 on your job, in the school, wherever you are, then you don't have freedom of religion. And we're in danger of losing freedom of religion in this country because what we're establishing is a kind of a secular atheist religion. We don't call it a religion, but when people start talking about ultimate stuff like sexuality and the human person and saying, if you don't agree with this, you're in trouble, you're going to get fined, you're going to lose your job, that's the establishment of a religion that is unconstitutional, fundamentally un-American, and will destroy all the freedoms we have. There's no question. I'm not just saying that, right? So when I was looking into this, I began to understand, wow, I didn't get this growing up. Now, I, I didn't go to church in a communist country. I, didn't, I mean, I didn't go to school in a communist country. I grew up in America. I went to decent school. But from the 60s onward, they weren't really teaching this. They weren't really teaching patriotism. They were teaching about everything that's wrong with America, right? Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with telling the truth about history. But if you get stuck on the negative and you can't get out of that, that's like having a child and saying to that kid, you're bad. You're just like your mother. (laughs) Or you're just like your father and you will never be any different. That is called cursing that child. You know, words have power. You are cursing that child. Now, maybe they did all those bad things that you're angry about. But what is the godly response? Love. Love says, I call you out on what you did. I want you to repent and change. And then I will hug you and celebrate with you because I want you to be better than you were. I don't condemn you to stay what you were. So in the 60s and now, it's very loud. There are voices saying to America, you're evil from the beginning. You will never change. You can never change. That is to curse something. Now, if you understand biblically, we have the power to bless and to curse. Okay? Anybody who doesn't want to look at the problems, that's foolishness. We're supposed to see our sins, repent of our sins. But once you repent... You celebrate. You don't say, well, I, I got to do better. Of course you got to do better. But there's a moment to say, I used to be like that, and now I'm like that. Do you think in this country people didn't celebrate when slavery was abolished? Can you imagine if they said, yeah, 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 slavery's abolished. Good. We got a long way to go. <laughs> yeah, but a half a million people just died to abolish slavery. You need to acknowledge what happened. That was a good thing. 
That was a godly thing. Slavery is against the law in America. You understand around the world today, there's places where it's not against the law? You want to condemn America? Go to the Muslim world where slavery is legal. If you're a Christian, you could be enslaved. On my radio program, I have talked to these people. We need to have a real view of what is happening in the world today. When, 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 we, when we signed the Civil Rights Act in this country, when we abolished uh, Jim, Jim Crow, okay, we're, did we become perfect like that? Of course not. But aren't you glad we abolished Jim Crow? Can we, can we, can we see our problems, condemn them, repent, take action to show that we really repented, and then celebrate that and say, Lord, show me more. I, I want to be just like you in every way. But if you think you can do that with a few laws, that's that utopianist scheme again. We can be as gods. Jesus even said, the poor you will always have with you. Does that mean we shouldn't try everything we can do to lift the poor out of poverty? Was that what Jesus was saying? No, but he's saying until you get to glory, you are in a broken world. You need to acknowledge that I am your only total hope in this world. So you need to do everything you can do, but don't get fooled into thinking that you, you can pass enough laws and that everybody's going to be good. Because at the heart of freedom is the idea that if we don't do what is right ourselves, if the government has to make laws to force you, you are not that free. The more laws and regulations we have, the less free we are. We want a nation with as small a government and as few laws as possible where the people will do all that stuff without being told. If your authority, if your higher authority is Jesus, you're going to be better than any laws can ever make you be. You're going to do stuff that no law will ever command you to do. When you love your neighbor, when you forgive your enemy, there's no law that can make you forgive your enemy in your heart and pray for your enemy. That is a far higher law than any government can ever give anyone. That is the law to which we're called. So when Paul is rebuking the Galatians, he's saying, why are you going back to that? I, we called you to something way beyond that. And you're going back to that? To this yoke of bondage? We are called to be free. We have a higher authority than the government. It's Jesus of Nazareth. We have a higher authority than the law in the scriptures. It's Jesus of Nazareth who came to fulfill the law and to take us beyond that so we could be like him. That's unbelievable. And why would we give that up for something far lesser? Now, what I find fascinating is that one of the reasons this country has been one of the most Christian countries in the history of the world is because we have never been officially Christian. Because we have freedom of religion. Because no one can be forced to be Christian. We have the freedom to live out our faith in a way that you're never going to see in these countries where, you know, my dad came from Greece. Everybody's Greek Orthodox. You know what that means when everybody's Greek Orthodox? It means almost nobody's Greek Orthodox. Because they're like, well, you know, yeah, we're all, we're all Greek Orthodox, right? Yeah, you know, I don't have to do anything except be Greek. Well, 
That's what the Germans thought in Nazi Germany, right? Luther said, oh, it's all by faith, it's all by grace. I'm a Lutheran. All Germans are Lutherans. We're all Lutherans. We don't have to do anything. I just need to be German. Well, once the government exists like a, like a crutch for you that way, that, hey, I'm French, I'm Catholic, I'm Italian, I'm Catholic. I, no, 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 no. You, 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 you understand. If you are not yourself alive to Jesus of Nazareth, has nothing to do with your church attendance, has nothing to do with how many times you sinned this way or did this, da, 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 da. If you believe Jesus loves you and died for you, you want to live for him. You don't do good stuff to earn his favor. You insult him when you do that. That, that would be like tipping your mother, you know, for fixing you a, a nice meal uh, when you're in high school. You know, Ma, that's real sweet. Here, here's a 10 spot. Thank you. <laughs> she would look, she, would, she might, if she's a good mother, she'll smack you. <laughs> what an offense. Jesus says, I died for you. And you, you want to hand me a tip or you want to do some, some extra thing to earn my favor? You have earned all the favor you can ever have because of what I did. And if you believe in me, you're done. You understand you're done. Now, here's where the good works come in. If you understand that he did this for you based on nothing you ever did, you need to be filled with gratitude to him, right? I mean... I love my mother and I love my father and I want to do anything I can to bless them knowing that no matter what I do, I can never repay them for what they did for me. And that's just my mother and father over a few years. Imagine what Jesus did for you from now through eternity if you get what he did for you. Your gratitude makes you want to do good in any way you can to bless him. To bless him, not to earn your way into his favor, which is an offense. To bless him, to thank him, to say, Lord, you did so much for me. How can I bless you, Lord God? What can I do? I can love my neighbor. I can forgive that person, which I don't want to forgive. I hate that person, but you command me, and in your strength, because I love you, I will forgive them and I will pray for them because you did so much more for me. That's the beginning of what I could begin to do for you. That's totally different, folks. Totally different. Let me close by telling you that the beginning of this country, right, uh, there was, uh, as you know, John Winthrop came over uh, and 10 years after the pilgrims, who were profound Christians, right? Uh, he started the, uh, the Boston uh, Bay Colony, right? And before he even got off the ship, he gave a famous sermon where he quotes Jesus, right? And he talks about that we as a community coming here from the old country where they will punch us in the head if, if we don't go to the church the king goes to, we want to worship God independently and freely. So we want to be a model for everyone else. We want to be a shining city on a hill. Now that's what Jesus said, right? In other words, we are called in our lives not to just be good enough. 
We're called to be so good that we shine so that people who don't have what you have see you and your life and they go, I want that. That, I see something there. I want what you have. How can I get what you have? Winthrop was saying that we want to be such a model community, Christian community in Boston, that when people see it, they're going to say, we want to be a part of that. We don't have that. Well, that's what Jesus said, right? We're not supposed to live for ourselves. We're supposed to live in such a way, so overflowing with gratitude for what he did on the cross, that people say, look at that person's life. They do stuff that I can't do. They pray for their enemies. They, they, they love people that they, they should hate, but they, they seem to have grace. I want that. I would like that. We're supposed to live like that. Jesus says we're supposed to be like a shining city on a hill. And Winthrop says it. And when you talk about American exceptionalism, folks, let's get this right. The reason America is exceptional, and it is exceptional, is not because we're better. It's not because we're better. If you know your theology, you know that every American has exactly as much original sin as anyone else in the world. With, with the possible exception of the French, I can't get into that. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so if you know that in our blood as Americans we are no better, when you're talking about American exceptionalism, you're talking about this idea, this idea of freedom that requires virtue, that requires faith, and that faith requires freedom. This is a beautiful idea that never existed in the history of the world. And we need to take pride in that idea. And that's why I dare to wear red, white, and blue. But guess what? Anything that is of God, you know and I know, God didn't make it for you. He made it for you to share with anyone you could possibly share it with. God blesses us to be a blessing. He never blesses us just to bless us. He loves us so much that he blesses us, but he says, but if you love me, you will share your blessing with anyone. So the freedom we have in this country, folks, God wants us to share it with the whole world. Now, we can't force it on the whole world because you can't force freedom. I've covered that. But we want to live in such a way that the whole world says, what they have, I want that freedom. In my country, if I go to church, they'll throw me in jail. They'll torture me. My mother and father came from countries where they didn't have what we have in America. That's why they taught me to love America, because they remember what it's like to live in a country where you do not have what we have here. Is America perfect? I don't think so. But trust me, if you live in some other country... You're going to want to come here even though it's not perfect because you're going to say, I got a shot there. If I work really hard, I keep my nose clean, I might be able to buy a house and raise my kids and send them to nasty universities where they'll learn all kinds of cultural Marxism. <laughs> that's, that's what happened to me. But then after that, they may hear the gospel and they may get saved. This is an amazing country, folks. But remember, we are blessed. We are blessed to be a blessing. So anytime, even when the president says, you know, uh, what does he say, America first or whatever like that, right? That's, you got to understand, that's like when you're on a plane and somebody says, put your mask on first. 
then put the mask on the kid next to you, right? That's not about put the mask on first and let the kid die. <laughs> it's put the mask on first so you'll be able to help the guy next to you. In other words, if we want America to be strong and, and prosperous and whatever, some people are just like it's all about them. But God says, no, I want you to be prosperous so you can share what you have, the ideas of freedom, economic freedom, every kind of religious freedom with the whole world. You'll have so much economic might that you can tell China to jump in a lake unless they stop persecuting the Uyghur Muslims in death camps. And you can tell them, we don't need your trade unless you clean up your act and start, stop torturing Christians. You understand if we're not strong as a nation, we have no leverage with satanic uh, communist states like that. But our strength is not for us. It's to bless others who don't get to come to a church like this. They have to go to underground house churches. Jesus calls us to care about them. Jesus calls us to care about them. He says, when I've given you so much that I've given you, will you not care about those who, who don't even dream of having what you have? That is the gospel. We are blessed to be a blessing. And if America has anything wonderful, it's a gift from God for those outside this country so that we could share these ideas with the whole world because the Lord wants everyone on this planet to be free, to have prosperity. I'll just uh, end with, with George Whitfield. You need to know this because I didn't know this growing up. There was a man named George Whitfield, an evangelist. I write about him in my new book, Seven More Men, but in my book, If You Can Keep It, I write about him as well. This man, I didn't know anything about him really. He came to this country in 1738, 39. He was a, an evangelist that makes Billy Graham and the Apostle Paul look like lazy agnostics. This man preached to thousands and thousands almost every day, four sermons a day, gigantic crowds. He was as anointed by God as anything we've ever seen. He preached up and down the 13 colonies for three decades. It was, a, it was uh, estimated that 75 to 80% of every person alive in the 13 colonies heard him preach in person at least one time. He was the only person in that day who was considered a celebrity. We didn't have celebrities. People knew who King George III was. People knew, uh, you know, they didn't know about celebrities. This guy was on fire preaching up and down the 13 colonies, and revival was breaking out up and down the 13 colonies. They called it the First Great Awakening. And Benjamin Franklin was there to greet him when he arrived in Philadelphia. In the beginning, they became friends. And Franklin saw what I already said, that when revival broke out under the preaching of George Whitfield, whoa, crime went down. All kinds of good things happened. And that's one of the ways that Franklin said, I think we can pull off this crazy liberty self-government idea because these people are prepared because they love Jesus, because they answer to a higher authority. And if enough of them answer to a higher authority, we don't need too many authorities on the ground. We can save a lot in taxes, small government. The people will govern themselves because they love Jesus. Except they need to continue it. We can't force them to continue it. 
George Whitfield became so popular up and down the 13 colonies that his message of the gospel of Jesus Christ became blurred with the idea of freedom. Now, that's not a bad thing because if I preach, if, if you're all churchgoers, right, but you don't really hear the gospel, and there are many churches, as you know, where you can go to church, but you're not really getting the goods of the gospel of Jesus. When you hear somebody like Whitfield come in and preach the pure gospel and he says, hey, forget about the priest, forget about the governor and the king, you need to have a direct relationship with Jesus of Nazareth. There's no shortcut. You must be born again. Don't tell me about we've been sitting in this pew since my grandfather bought it in, you know, 1682. God doesn't care. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You must be born again. Now, as I said before, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Once you get that idea, it leads to other ideas. It leads to the idea, it's like, wait a minute, that means if God's no respecter of persons, if he sees every one of us equally, he sees me equal with the king, with the governor, with the, the dead preacher that I've been listening to for all this time. And he's going to judge them just like he's going to judge me. And he's calling me to hold them to account. He's calling me because I have a direct relationship with him, because I am free in him. He's calling me to really be free and to call my leaders to account, to make sure that they are doing the right thing. Not just to listen to them because I'm under their authority. We're all under God's authority, and that changes the dynamic. And that gave a lot of American colonists the crazy idea that they could really be free and govern themselves. So it was the gospel of freedom that I just quoted from Galatians that led to political freedom, to the idea of political freedom. I mentioned this in my Luther book as well. These things don't happen right away. We didn't become a perfect country in 1776 or in 1783 or 1787. We're not a perfect country yet. But you need to understand how this works, folks, because unless we, the people, govern ourselves and celebrate our freedom and teach our children these freedoms and everything I've been talking about, it just goes away. It just goes away. Just like the faith, I can't say, well, I baptized that kid, done. I got to teach him to live out his faith because there's nothing forcing him. I need to teach him, and he needs to freely live out his faith. I need to teach my kids to freely live out the freedom they have in America, to understand what a fragile, crazy gift it is that we don't deserve, but it's a gift given to us that we could share it with those who don't have it. And on and on and on and on. If we don't teach these things, they just go away because the natural state of mankind, I don't need to tell you, is not freedom. The scripture says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty which, with which Christ has made us free. No one can force you to do that. I said there would be a quiz at the end of this. Here's the quiz. Do you believe that what Jesus did on the cross is real and that he did it for you? If you do believe that, good behavior will follow in gratitude for what he did for you. He says, I love you so much, 
I can't begin to explain it to you, but I died on the cross for you. If you really believe that, it will change your life. And there is nothing else, nothing that can get you an inch closer to heaven. Nothing. If you get that, you pass the test. Praise the Lord.